chapter 8. Romans 8, we're talking about how Paul is sort of winding up and explaining how to live life under grace and how that really affects your life. And chapter 7 talked about the struggle, and chapter 8 talks about walking in the Spirit and how the, the remedy for the way that the flesh is, the remedy for that tension that's within us that is having a hard time doing what we know we ought to do, and we're doing things that we wish we didn't do, um, that the key is to learn to walk in the Spirit. The key is in being in relationship with the Lord through the Holy Spirit and to listen to the Holy Spirit and recognize that He is leading us and He is guiding us. And as we saw last week, He's, he's speaking to our spirit and as we cry out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, the, the depth of that relationship is one that the Holy Spirit is really involved in as he draws us into an intimacy with the Lord, as he draws us into a, a closeness of relationship that then becomes the basis of how we live our lives. The reflection of that relationship is what will give us the ability, give us the victory over those destructive tendencies that we have in our lives. But having said all of that, he also now addresses here in chapter 8 the struggle that goes on, the difficulty that's here. And I think often this is something that as Christians we don't understand sufficiently and therefore, when we're in a trial, we act like something weird is happening. We act like there's something inexplicable that somehow, wait a minute, if I'm walking in the Spirit, life ought to always be just the way I want it to be. And it should be without struggles and without pain. And I think so often we think, man, if life hurts, something must be wrong. But that's not the case. And Paul goes on to explain that that isn't at all inconsistent with the reality of a life of grace, with the reality of the fact that, that we can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so beginning with verse 18, Romans chapter 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Boy, that perspective is so important. The sufferings now, the glory that's going to happen. In heaven and even on earth, with God working in our lives. And Paul was someone who knew something about suffering. When you read 2 Corinthians, he goes into it in great detail. Paul did not live an easy life. Paul was not one who was there in an ivory tower waxing eloquent about the wonders of life. He was no uh, feel-good poet or anything like that. Paul was a man who endured huge amounts of suffering. But he says, walking in the Spirit, I get a perspective. And I just go, how dare I focus on suffering that's happening now when God has promised for me, guaranteed for me, his glory as an end result. You know, I, I uh, read something today. Someone was talking about um, dying. And they said that they contrasted the way so often we look on death and the way that the members of the early church and some of those martyrs looked on death. And, and they said, sometimes it seems like we are fighting with every fiber within us to resist death at all costs. And, and, and just, he said, we are fighting like we don't believe there's anything after death. Sometimes the way we approach death is almost as if we really believe it's the end. And he contrasted that to martyrs of the church who knelt down, submitted themselves, and willingly said, do whatever you're going to do. 
I have a future. I know that, that my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm going to heaven. And so there's nothing that you can do that's going to rattle me or shake me. And, and they would willingly walk into the flames. They would willingly lower themselves into boiling oil. They would willingly stay within the fire without even being tied to the stake because they welcomed the idea of what would follow. For us, sometimes we have such a desperation. And it, it, it really, if we're honest about it, and I, and I don't want to be insensitive because, uh, believe me, I've cried and Jesus cried at Lazarus's funeral. And I'm always sad for me when someone I love goes to be with the Lord. Um, I will not be crying when I die, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Unless it just happens to come right at a time when, you know, the Dodgers lose the World Series or something. <laughs> but, but when it comes to, to death, the realistic perspective is to understand that for a Christian, death is the best thing that can happen to you. And I'm convinced that some of us, as we go through our mourning processes even, if our loved ones could come back, they would go, what are you doing? I mean, is it really a tragedy that now I'm in the presence of the Lord? Is that something that's so horrible that, that it's just crushing you, that I'm gone? Wouldn't you rather have me be where you know, I am? It would, it would be like if you know, the people in Chicago are depressed because their senator now had to move to Washington, D.C. to become the president. I mean, I think most of the people in Chicago, maybe for various reasons, are glad to see him gone because he, well, because he got a promotion and, you know, now he's able to serve in a greater way. So why do we have such a hard time with the notion of promotion? And scaling that back a little bit, if I am going to suffer and it's going to make me a better person, it's going to make me closer to God, it's going to make me more effective in sharing his word. What's the problem? When you compare the glory, the glory of God's plan for my life, the glory of ultimate eternity with him, it's, it's just the most logical thing in the world to recognize there's no such thing as tragic suffering. Suffering is always going to bring about glory so much out of proportion to the amount of the suffering. And, you know, we often can adjust in certain areas. And we say, well, no pain, no gain. And we're willing to submit ourselves to a certain amount of discomfort because we think it'll cause us to lose a pound or two. You know, but when you look at how much work you actually have to do to lose a pound... Really, is it really worth it? I don't know, maybe it is. But compared to that, a pound of suffering in this life, and God says, I'm going to repay you 10,000 times. I'm going to make it so worthwhile for you. That was Paul's perspective. And so he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. It's just ridiculous to even mention it compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. For us, the choice is, do you believe that or not? Do we really believe that God loves us, that he is working in our lives, and that nothing painful happens to us that isn't incredibly worth it? If you don't believe that, you know, why are you a Christian? Why would you follow a God who's not able to do what he says he's going to do? Why would you believe in a God who lies to you? Because he has assured us that this is the case. In Paul's perspective, and yeah, you're not feeling it every moment. But it's a decision to say it's not even worth considering. It's off the table as to whether this is worth it or not. It's off the table as to whether... I don't know how much more of this I can take. Do you understand how many foolish, destructive decisions people make because they think they just can't take anymore? And yet, who's the best judge of what you can take? Often people, and 
you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to go off on a rant on, on divorce and, and, hey, divorce is a reality and it's a tricky issue biblically and everything. And so all I'm saying is I know lots of people who choose to leave a marriage even though they feel like God wants them to stay in the marriage, even though they feel like this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I just don't think I can take anymore. You know, everyone who's married has been through lots of times where they wondered whether they could take it or more. But are you willing to believe that God says, you know, and Paul here reiterates, hey, whatever you're suffering, the glory is so much greater than that that you should hardly mention it. I mean, this applies in every area of our lives. There are sometimes people who want you to have kids, and you realize, I mean... Yeah, it hurts when they come out and everything, but you see the baby, you kind of forget all about that. If men had to have kids, no one would have more than one. But <laughs> you have the baby, it hurts, and then there's that joy, and then they grow up. And then again, you begin to question, was this really worth it? I thought it hurt to have a baby. Compared that to dealing with some of the struggles that adolescents go through and Worse yet, those who become adults and then they're still bums and living in your house and everything. And you're like, I had no idea that all this was involved in having a baby. And yet, ultimately, what's your perspective? Do you believe in glory? Do you believe that God is able, even when you're, and I don't want to get too specific because I don't know if this applies to any of you, so I'm not looking at you if this is you, but you know, even if your 40-year-old kid is still living at home, which is a tragedy in itself, um, do you believe that God can do something good through that? Do you believe that God is able to change lives and to turn that around? And do you want to love him even though he or she may be so dysfunctional that they don't really know how to live life, but do you want them to be in heaven? Then won't you think it was worth it? Believe me, I could talk to you about a lot of people who have lost their children who would be happy to tell you anything is worth it to have them, to have that relationship with them, to, to see them come to Christ, to see them turn their lives around whenever and however and wherever they do that. But for us, we are so oriented toward expecting things to be easy that as soon as it starts to hurt, we think, we begin to calculate, how much of this can I really take? How much pain is this really worth? And we are always considering cutting our losses. You know, there are a lot of people who once believed in God who now don't believe in God because they don't approve of something that he allowed. They see pain and suffering in the world, or they lose a loved one, and they decide to bail on God. I mean, how stupid is that? If you really believed in God, don't you let him be God? Are you going to base your judgment of whether or not there is a God based on whether or not God acts like you would if you were in that situation? Well, how have you done with your own life? Have you shown such wisdom that now you, you think you can pass judgment on God? But it all comes down to, for some reason, suffering is a precursor to glory. It was for Jesus, certainly. He's the ultimate example. And Paul, in talking about Jesus humbling himself to the point of death and then being highly exalted there in Philippians 2, says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We share in his sufferings. We, too, are in a world that hurts. We, too, are in a hostile environment. And yet we, too, if we will hang in there, we face a promise of glory. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, he sat down at the right hand of God. Paul had a vision of that. And to him, his suffering was a joke compared to the glory that was going to happen. And he goes on to say, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
He goes, all of creation is waiting for this to get wrapped up. It's not just you that can't wait until you're finally in that new heaven and new earth. That All of creation is kind of going, when is this going to get fixed? And he goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation itself has paid a price for the sins of man. And that wasn't just a natural result. The fact that the world is in a damaged state, the fact that there are things that go on in this world that are unfair and hurtful and undesirable, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. And it's a, it's a result of the rebellion and sin of Adam and Eve and of all of us. We pretty much keep it in that state perpetually. But as he says, creation was subjected to that, but it wasn't creation's fault, really. The creation in verse 20 was subjected to futility and frustration, not willingly, the creation didn't have a choice, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God was the one who allowed creation to be damaged, who who caused the situation to be a painful one now, as even in Genesis 3, he put that curse on on man and on woman, and the result of that was that which happened to creation, the pain and everything that we would include, including childbirth and including needing to pull weeds and things like that. And he says, God did that in hope. Somehow, the devastation of creation is all connected to God's plan to restore everything. And it's almost as if, and, and this might be taking it a little too far, but I think it's consistent with what he says here, that God wanted to set the stage for the most incredible turnaround ever, the most incredible redemption ever. And so the Bible talks about the redemption of, of everything in the world, not just of the souls of people. Because when creation fell through man falling, but by the curse of God himself, it set the stage for an incredible redemption that would take place. Because creation was created as gorgeous as it was, as gorgeous as it is still, even in its fallen state, all of this was just a backdrop for man. It was just a, it was just decoration for us. And so when we fell, when we decided to not align ourselves with God's purposes, then all of creation was damaged too because the purpose of creation was to be supportive of the fulfillment of mankind. And so Paul is saying, look, you hurt, but all of creation is damaged except the fact that you live in a fallen world. It's it's understandable, but kind of ridiculous in a way when we spend so much time trying to figure out why there's pain and suffering in the world. Why does God allow innocent children to suffer? Why does God allow animals to brutalize each other? Why does God allow people who've never heard the gospel to be destroying each other and themselves and be subject to all kinds of paganism and and superstition? Why, 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 why? Well, you're acting like this is supposed to be a perfect world. This isn't the way the world was created. So get out of your head the idea that we ought to be able to look out there and see it as a perfect reflection of God. You still see signs everywhere of God's glory, even in the fallen creation. But it's far from perfect because it's not the way he created it. But Paul is saying... Accept the fact that this is the way the world is and recognize that there is a hope, there is a promise, there is a future that's going to make it more than worthwhile. All of the damage that's been done is nothing compared to the restoration. It's like if you're in a house and you need a bigger house, sometimes 
You have to tear that house down in order to make room to build the house that's adequate. What we are living in is a major demolition project whereby God is at work redeeming people to himself, preparing the world for ultimate redemption. And am I going to question how he does that? See, what if, I mean, think of it this way, God loves everyone, and he wants everyone to be saved. So it's certainly reasonable to believe that God wants to save as many as he can. He is limited by the fact that the way to get saved is to put faith in Jesus Christ. So God, if he forced people to be saved, we'd all be robots, and it would be like, you know, dogs are saved, you know, and have no choice. God wants to have a relationship with us, and relationship presupposes will, free choice. So God desires that everyone get saved. Every person that's ever walked the face of the earth, God wanted them to get saved. But not everyone responds to the information that God gives them, and as a result, everyone isn't going to get saved, and we know that. But we also know that for many of us, When we go through hard times, that's what brought us to the Lord. That's what brings us closer to the Lord still. So God's really smart. I believe that he is actively calculating what kind of a world will bring about the optimal number of conversions. And you might think, oh, just a beautiful, wonderful world where everyone's happy and everything. Well, how many of the beautiful, wonderful people you know all of a sudden decide to come to Jesus? No, it's usually after the beautiful, wonderful people go to prison. (laughs) You know, their life starts to fall apart. And that's the way it is with, with so many of us. So this world is the way it is, but understand, God has a purpose for it. He made it this way, and He is working. And if He says, there's glory coming, then we ought to be able to look at this world and accept it the way it is. I think that one of the most single critical aspects to dealing with life, and, I, and it's rare if I ever have a counseling appointment with someone where I don't refer to this or bring it up, um, it's that key that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4 where he says, I have learned how to be content in every circumstance. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is so important. That's so critical. Because that means that right now, I need to not depend on anything changing in order for me to be content. You know, I can fool myself into thinking that if I could just change this and this and this, I would be content. But if you did that, there are other things that you would want to change. The truth is, every one of us, right where we are right now, can be content tonight. We can decide to be content. Now you can go, oh, you don't know. I mean, I'm unemployed. My family hates me. I, you know, I don't even believe in God. I hate God. You're used to telling me that I should be content right now hating God? Yeah. If that's where you are right now, then you better learn to be content where you are, no matter what that is. Now, don't freak out. God doesn't always want you to stay where you are. But right now, tonight, if you don't know God and you don't believe in God and you're kind of mad at God for some things that have happened in your life, that doesn't disturb me at all. If right now you're living a lifestyle that's awful, that goes against everything God says, if, you are, if you're thinking about taking your own life, if you're, if you're living in an immoral lifestyle or whatever, I want you to understand, God wants to meet you right where you are. He is not disturbed about where you are. He does not look at your life right now and go, oh no, what am I going to do? I've got to change this right away. You are on the path that God has you on. Now, I believe that if tonight you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't understand that God loves you, then 
right now that in itself is setting you up for something really good. I love to meet somebody who believes that there's not a God because there's no one who's more ready to receive the idea that there is a God than somebody who has spent some time living believing there isn't one. And so, you know, as the, you know, they say the darkest hour is right before the dawn. I don't care what's going on in your life right now. God's not troubled by it <clears throat> because he has a plan for your life. And what we all have to do is accept where we are right now. And once I accept where I am right now, I am then prepared to go, okay, are there some changes that I'd like to make? Fine adjustments. You don't improve lives with constant radical emotional upheaval. So often, a, you know, it's like oversteering a car. You spin it one way, you turn the wheel too far the other way, you spin it the other way. People who are always looking for a radical solution to everything will bounce from thing to thing. As we were saying Sunday, you know, there in Ephesians, like a child tossed to and fro by every wind, just being bounced around. That's not what God wants to do. He's not a constant revivalist, always trying to stir you up and get you pumped up and excited. God is someone who calmly sits next to the woman at the well, as Jesus did. And he just begins to talk to her, and he deals with her where she is. And he doesn't pronounce great judgments on her. He doesn't call her to change everything about her life. He just begins to talk. That's what God wants to do with each of us. Yeah, there are a lot of things in our lives that aren't the way he wants them to be, but he's okay with them being there because he has a plan to move things forward for us. And he does that quite often in a, in a really undramatic way. And for many of us, I mean, there are times in our lives when we make a decision for Christ and it makes a radical change. When I came to the Lord, it was a, a huge change in my life. But the most significant changes in my life weren't the ones that happened then. Oh, you know, at that time I gave up drugs and, and that was a good thing, definitely. I gave up some other things, but that was a drop in the bucket compared to what God ultimately wanted to do in my life. And the more I accept where I am right now and who I am right now, the more ready I am for the glory that God wants to bring to my life, the path that we're on. And so that's why Paul goes to great detail to explain this is the way the world is. It is what it is. Accept that. Don't expect that to change until God brings about that ultimate restoration and renewal that he was going to make. If we don't understand that, we hang on to and cling to what we have. Now, this week was Earth Week, and we had Earth Day, and I, you know, we shouldn't, I, I'm not somebody who just thinks, you know, as Christians, it's all going to melt, it's all going to burn anyway, so let's just cut down all the trees and get it over with and eat all the animals. And, you know, I, I think we should have an appreciation for the environment. We of all people should appreciate the beauty of God's creation and interest in preserving that. And, and you know, when last week when we went up to Yosemite for a couple days, it was just gorgeous. And as we were hiking up Vernal Falls, we were talking about creation and how beautiful it is. And I was saying, you know, think about it though. The way Vernal Falls is right now, the greenness of the trees, the rushing water going down, the beautiful blue sky, this is the world after the fall. This is the world in bad shape as far as God's concerned. And we look at it. And, and then somehow... We think that, oh, heaven's going to be boring because it's like just a bunch of clouds and stuff. Are you kidding me? The world that he is preparing, the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to make Yosemite look like, I won't name a city, but um, <laughs> we'll just say the dump, you know? It's going to be incredible. And all of our senses will be appealed to and everything that we could ever desire to do and to experience is is all going to be there. It's amazing. But if our perspective is this is the only world there is and 
we better desperately preserve it because it's going downhill and the world's getting, you know, global warming is happening, all the polar bears aren't going to have glaciers to float on and everything. We get this desperation that is characteristic of not giving God any credit, not believing that he could have a plan. So we freak out about the earth in the same way that we freak out about our kids, about our job, about our, you know, the economy, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and everything else because we're acting like this is it. This isn't it. But the way it is right now, God knows how it is. And he's in control. He has a plan. And we, and we'll see as we go on, we ought to be people who believe in his plan. But he's saying, look, Creation realizes it. It is what it is. How about you recognizing it and then having enough trust in God that you know that glory is on the way? Now, in verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He goes, you know what? It is painful. There are aches and pains and groans, and that's okay. That's an indication that what we are experiencing now is temporary. It's, it's supposed to hurt. You know, as you get older, you groan more. And I, you know, I found that out again after spending a few days, you know, hiking in the mountains. I was just so sore, and it really helped that the young people that went with us were sore too. Made me gave me great satisfaction. But I mean, the truth is, they were probably exaggerating it to make me feel better, and I was toning it down so they wouldn't know how old and out of shape I am. But I, I, I groan when I get up in the morning. I groan. I'm paying for. Injuries that have happened to me in the past, pain for activities that I did that, you know, if I could go back, were they worth it? I don't know. But, you know, I have a lot of memories and, and have done some crazy things that people enjoy hearing about. But the result of that is I'm groaning. Life hurts. But Paul goes, of course, creation is groaning. When the, when the, trees in the, in the forest have wind go by or when lightning strikes them or when the bark beetle attacks or they don't get enough water, they're groaning too, falling over and dying, many of them. Why do you think that things ought to be any different for you? Yeah, we groan, that's the way the world is, acknowledge it, accept it. You just, you really can't fight it. You can fight it for a while, but you'll always find that the remedies to groaning cause more problems than the groaning itself. We, how many times have we seen this happen where they have a cure for something and then it turns out to be worse than the disease? And, you know, you look at the commercials now for medication and it's a crack up. They're showing somebody running through the meadow and it's just beautiful and they're so happy. And then they go... And many people who are, take this medicine are going to experience paralysis. They're going to, you know, and you're like, ah, da, 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 da. you know, I, we're so deluded into thinking that somehow it's really going to make you do that. No, you know, if you want to see what the future holds, if you really want to live for a long time, go over to Rite Aid right there next to Leisure World and watch people getting out of their cars and walking in to get their medication and you'll see what's coming. <laughs> and it's not pretty. And, and we groan. It hurts. I'm getting there. I understand it. And you know what? I accept it. Because it's just the way it is. And I can't, you know, if I start riding a skateboard to church, it's just not going to make me get any younger. And so he's going, no, creation is groaning, waiting. We're waiting for something we are in the waiting room right now, waiting for, to see what God is going to do. It's supposed to hurt. It's okay to groan. It's okay to complain, but understand this. It's worth it. You're waiting. You're like somebody who's having a child. 
the birth pangs of, of that which is going to happen. Everything that hurts us right now is simply the birth pangs of the glory that's coming. I remember when uh, Pastor Chuck's daughter Cheryl had her first child, and they were really pumped up by the doctor about, oh, be as natural as possible, and they got the ABC room, and Brian and Cheryl were down there, and, and she's ready to give birth, and she didn't like it. And she's kind of a princess. She doesn't like pain a whole lot. And, and, and so Cheryl grabbed her suitcase and said, I'm not doing this. I'm leaving. <laughs> Brian, who's so calm, you know, had to talk her down. And, but that's a lot of us. It's like we're about to give birth to the greatest development ever. And we're going, I don't know if I want to do this. And I'll just saddle up and and push, because it's, it's worth it. It really is. Four, verse 24. Sorry to put a little more of an image than you wanted in there. All you're going to remember about Romans 8 is stirrups. <laughs> verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, it's hope. That's what it's about. If you have it, it wouldn't be hope. If you have it without hope, you probably wouldn't appreciate it. You may not even want to do it if it was just readily available. You'd begin to question it. And so he says, what this life is about is hope. And the only way to have hope is to not have what you are going to have. God is building anticipation within each of us. And that's just the nature of the beast. The early days, for instance, in a marriage... I mean, it's, it's usually rough when you're starting out. And for some people it isn't. Some people just seem to cruise right into marriage and everything goes great. But for most of it, it's difficult. I remember for us, I, was, I had mono really bad when we got married. I could hardly stand up. And I was just so tired. And we were completely broke because I had been sick. I hadn't been working. Ann had wrecked her car. She wasn't working. It was stupid for us to get married, according to most people. But we went through with it. I managed to stay awake during the ceremony. Everything in the ceremony went wrong. It was hilarious. I, I, I'm only sad that they hadn't invented video cameras back then. But a cat walked through, and a guy's up here singing on the stage, and the cat's doing figure eights around his legs. Anne's dad knocked off this glass candle thing, and it broke and almost started a fire. The the pastor got nervous, forgot to pronounce us man and wife. He, he called us Brother Ann and Sister Dave, you know. He made this great statement. He said, Brother Ann and Sister Dave, today you arrived here as one life and one ministry, but you'll leave as two lives and two <laughs> ministries. And... It really went downhill from there. We, for our honeymoon, they, they lied to us about where the hotel was. They tried to give us two twin beds. They, you know, Anne used to tell people that our honeymoon, I spent it sleeping and she spent it crying. <laughs> but other difficult things happened. And there were plenty of times when you go, and, and every one of you who's been married for any length of time can think back on things like that and go, oh man, it's, it really hurts sometimes. And yet, people who have managed to stay married and hung in there together, and I would attest to this, it's so worth it. I would do it all over again in a second. I don't even think about, well, you know, and if I had married Christy Brinkley, it might have been, no, I, it's like... Have you seen her lately? No. <laughs> but but you go, guy, this was really worth it. It was so worth it. God knows how to bring glory out of groaning. And he is demonstrating that. And even in creation, we see illustrations of it. 
where when a tree dies, others are born. The amazing capacity of redemption, of restoration is even here in this fallen world. The other day, we went on a little steam locomotive ride up just outside Yosemite, and it was a place that had been a logging camp. And they had, back then, in logging camps, they completely gutted everything. Every tree was gone, so then they shut it down. Well, it's been about 80 years, and it's the most beautiful, thickly forested woods that you could imagine in 80 years. And you go... This is amazing. Even in a fallen world, we see this principle that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, talking about death and resurrection, that a seed has to die in order for a beautiful plant to grow up. And that's the way it is for us. Sorry, the only way to get to the life that God has planned for us is through pain and through death. And nature illustrates that for us beautifully. And it's something that Paul realized, okay, This is just the way it is. We're all groaning because now we have something to look forward to. And the truth is, especially in our fallen state, what we need the most is hope. We need something to look forward to. Now, I believe that that's a part of our humanity that will continue to be the case in all of eternity. That even when we're in heaven, we will be looking forward to what comes next, to what else is going to happen. It's, you know, we are not designed to just sit there and be glad where we are. There's no, heaven is not a retirement. Hope is a part of who we are. And every pain is a reminder of the hope. Every time a tree falls, it's a reminder of a world that's going to be vastly different when we live basically in the Garden of Eden again, where it's all perfect, where God looks at it and goes, now this is what I call good. This is the way it was designed to be. But in the meantime, hope is what we have. And when we hope in God's word and what he has promised us, that isn't something cheesy. That's not something we go, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, hope. He goes, no, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We hang in there because of the hope that we have. And I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. That tells you a lot about what he can accomplish. And then in verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. He uses prayer as an illustration. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So this beautiful illustration of how the Holy Spirit works within our prayers. Now again, the context, we're talking about walking in the Spirit. We're talking about living life in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so now he says, when you pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. There are times when you just don't know how to pray as you ought. Now, there are a couple of different interpretations of this particular passage. Um, Personally, I believe that what he's talking about here is praying in the Spirit or praying using the gift of tongues. If that freaks you out, there's another perfectly acceptable explanation for you, Um, and so I'm not going to ram my interpretation down your throat. However you want to do it. For me, and, and it works perfectly, and this is consistent with Scripture, about the gift of tongues, is that tongues can be used with interpretation as basically a substitute for prophecy. Tongues was used in an evangelistic sense, at least on the day of Pentecost, so that people could hear in their own language that which was being stated. So then that's how 3,000 immigrants came to the Lord in one sitting with with uh, Peter then praying and or preaching and presenting the gospel. Um, however, the scripture talks about, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, tongues as being, somebody who speaks in tongues is speaking to the Lord and is giving thanks. And so in that perspective, it would seem that the gift of tongues is something that can be used. And Paul seemed to be his primary usage for the gift because in the assembly he said he'd rather speak 
you know, five words with using his mind than 10,000 words with a tongue. And yet he said, I speak in tongues with more than you all. So it would seem that he was making a reference to this devotional use of the gift of tongues whereby, and, and how it is for me, when you're in prayer and you're just, there are certain things that you don't even know how to pray. And you're, and you're passionate and within your heart you are just sensing that there's something more that God wants to say, but you just, you run out of words. And at that point, if you um, just kind of will let yourself go, for many, many people, they've found the experience of then as their mouth begins to utter things that really aren't words, it's not a foreign language, because these are things that are too deep for words themselves, but it's a groaning or an uttering, and if you don't want to call it tongues, if you want, just groan, but let yourself go and allow the Holy Spirit to breathe through you that which he wants to communicate. He knows your spirit. Remember, he is the one who, when we say, Abba, Father, he is bearing witness with us. He's totally connected with us. So whatever you do theologically with the use of tongues or prayer language or any of that stuff, I will not argue that with people. And I, you know, there's anything that's going to freak you out, don't worry about it. But, but I would say, since... Since he promises here that, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to intercede for me with groanings that are too deep for words. And if you've ever come to the point where you just don't know how to pray as you ought, the Holy Spirit will intercede for you. I don't care what it sounds like. I'd really recommend doing it by yourself. But for me, there are just times when I, when I sense a connection to God where he meets me at the highest level of my inability and of my frustration. And, and at those times, I believe that what the Scripture says is true and that the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. The great thing is the Holy Spirit is interceding for us in groanings that are too deep for words. Jesus also, and we'll see this later, Jesus is also interceding in our prayer life. It's why it's so important to pray, because you have the Holy Spirit working in us from inside down here, you have Jesus interceding for us who forever liveth, Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. He is sticking up for us in heaven. So I'm not too worried about how I word my prayers. I don't have to get my prayers all ready. I would never in a million years write a prayer down so I get it just right. The truth is, I don't care if you write your prayers out or use somebody else's prayer, by the time the Holy Spirit cleans it up and Jesus cleans it up at the other end, you probably wouldn't recognize it anyway, but you would just go, that's what I want to say, that's what I feel, that's what I'm dealing with. He knows you better than you know yourself. Now, Paul is using this as an illustration to let us know, again, this principle of hope this principle of groaning, this principle that it doesn't all depend on you. You don't have to get it just right in order for God to get something done. And see, back to the idea of legalism as opposed to walking in the grace of God, the pressure is on me if I need to do the right thing in order for God to be pleased. If I need to have all the answers, if I need to do it just right, then, man, that's a lot of pressure. And I fail at that. I love that it's not up to me, that if all I can do is go blah, 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 and the Holy Spirit is praying, that's really cool. Because now, and it causes me to want to pray more, because I know He is there making sense out of it. I don't know what I want a lot of times, and sometimes I pray for things that I'm glad later that God didn't give me those things that I wanted. And you've all had that experience too. But we've got it made because our groaning turns into prayer. You know, when you're just in pain and you're laying there, you're just going, oh, the Holy Spirit is going, um, Father, what she means to say is, and lays the prayer out. That's an amazing guarantee, an amazing truth. So if you don't know what to pray, just groan. Holy Spirit will be there 
Jesus interpreting it at the other end. He knows your heart. He knows you that well. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Amazing. And, and you all know this verse, but it's important to grab it in context. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. God, what, a, what a, the most amazing guarantee in the Bible, I think, that says if you love God and you're his child, you've put your faith in him, everything that happens to you is a good thing because it all is going to work out for good. In other words, you're right on track. You're thinking sometimes about, boy, I made some bad decisions in the past and it set me back years. No, it didn't. There isn't anything that you can do that will set you back at all. God is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. And the great illustration of it is Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis when his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt and he went there and, you know, you'd think that he'd be pretty mad at his brothers when he finally met up with them. And now he was in a position where he could have had his brothers killed or put in slavery or whatever. When the brothers realized, uh-oh, this ruler in Egypt is the kid we threw in the ditch and then sold into slavery. Are we in trouble? <laughs> and Joseph said, nah. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So... How do I explain? How do you beat something like that? And how do I wrestle with, well, is this something that Satan did? Is this something that God did? Is this something that's my fault? Or should I blame my friend? Doesn't matter. Whatever has happened to you, all things, if you find anything that isn't included in all things, then let me know afterwards. But all things... God is working, and he's working them together for good. That's why, as we saw earlier in Romans, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God turns everything into success, and that's why I am capable of facing life, though I groan, though it hurts, though it isn't the way I want it to be. That's where I can learn to be content, because whatever happened today is going to work out according to God's plan and for what's best for me. So, for instance, I go to the planning commission. I think they're being unreasonable. I think they're being stupid. And I express myself in a hopefully diplomatic and a kind way to them. And I go away, and I don't have to lay awake tonight going, man, the city's really messing us up. This is going to set us back. Because if we've done what we can do, it's all good. This God may have a perfect reason for delaying some plan that I have by 45 days. I know that he causes all things to work together for good. Now, is God working on an unreasonable bureaucrat and causing them to do that? It doesn't matter. Because if they are intending to mess with us, they're messing with the God who's going to turn it into something good for us. And so I don't, and, I, and I've told people before, there, sometimes Pastor Chuck would make decisions that would just seem crazy to buy something that I'm going, no, no, that's, that's, that's so dumb. And then all of a sudden something would happen and it's worth a whole lot more. And, you know, we never could do what we planned to do with it, but it ends up being worth a whole lot more, and we do something even better with it. And, and one time I asked Chuck, I, I said, Chuck, do you have a special insight into hearing from God? Or does God just cover your, um, we'll say, program? And, <laughs> and Chuck kind of laughed, and he said, honestly, probably a little of both. <laughs> All I know is God has blessed me. And God has blessed us as a church, and God is blessing all of you, in different ways and according to different timing. 
But I don't care if it's that we heard from God and made the right decisions or if it's that he's walking along with a, with a broom cleaning up after us. It's all good. It ends up fine. The cool thing there is, you know, it's not that critical. When you have this kind of an insurance policy, it's not that critical decisions that I make. I don't feel like the future is hanging on whether or not I make the right decision. So if I'm planning on moving or if I'm planning on doing this or investing there or doing that, I'm not all stressed about it because I have this incredible insurance policy that covers whatever I do. As a result, I just, hey, whatever I think the Lord wants me to do, whatever I sense the Spirit doing, I do it. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, and you know what? Because of God cleaning up after me, I'm not even sure of which it is most of the time. But the reason that I have hope and the reason that I can be content where I am and the reason that I am willing to deal with the pain that life brings along is because I have my Romans 8.28 insurance policy in my back pocket and God is going to cause everything to work together for good. Do I groan? You bet. But I have hope and I have faith and I realize it's all going to turn out. It's all going to be Fine, you have that guarantee if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, then I'm a little scared for you because there's no telling what God's going to have to do to get your attention. And if you continue to resist Him, your life is going to be painful for nothing. But the point is, life hurts for all of us. But if I'm going to hurt, I'd rather hurt for a reason than to hurt for no reason. It's going to be tough either way. So why not walk with Him? And let him turn that pain into, into glory and blessing. Now, as he says, then he goes into this heavy doctrinal passage. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, we could go into a lengthy discussion on predestination and foreknowledge and calling and all of that kind of stuff. And um, if you really want to do that, I can refer you to some books that'll do it. We've dealt with it earlier in the book, and we dealt with it in Ephesians as well, so I'm not going to harp on it. Here's what he's saying, and in the context, here's the importance of it. God has a plan. It starts with what he knows. He knew us before we ever existed. And that plan, that foreknowledge, leads somehow to predestination, that he looks at us and puts a plan into place for our life. Now, notice that the predestination isn't necessarily being predestined to salvation because people get into double predestination. Well, if somebody's predestined to salvation, somebody else is predestined to, to hell, and the Bible doesn't ever say that. And his point here is not, he knew you, so he, so he predestined you. But as he says, you're predestinated in order um, to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's talking about God's plan of development for your life. Now, I don't understand predestination. Um, if you're a staunch Arminian, you understand it really well. If you're a staunch Calvinist, you understand it really well. All I understand is that you're both wrong. <laughs> but, but his point here is God's plan for you started before you were there. He knew you. He made a plan to fix what's wrong with you, predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. He called you. You finally heard that call and responded. He justified you. He declared you righteous. And those he justifies, he glorifies. And the emphasis here is it's all the same people. This isn't a, a matter of elimination, he foreknew a lot of people, he 
predestined less, and then he called some less, and then he justified less, and then a few of those people ended up, you know, being glorified. Now, when he starts with you, he's going to finish with you. His, he has a plan for your life. You are right on track with his plan. He is doing it. Stop acting like something's wrong in your life. Stop believing that something has disrupted the plan of God. His plan is older than you are. You can't frustrate it. You can't mess it up. You're going to get to the end. You're going to finish the race that you've started. He that has begun a good work in you is going to complete it. And because of that, just enjoy your relationship with the Spirit. Just appreciate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And accept your life the way it is right now. I know it hurts. I know it groans. And we can all sit around and compare war stories and groan together. But that groaning is our reminder of a hope and a future that God has for us. And that's why it's because of his sovereignty. It's because of his plan. It's because he always finishes what he starts. He always works everything together for good, we don't have a problem in the world that doesn't involve his solution that was instituted before the foundation of the world. It's all under control. It's not up to you. It doesn't depend on you. Nobody is putting you at the free throw line with the game on the line, and you better sink this or your team loses. You can brick it off the backboard. It doesn't matter. We're going to win because of God. And so if you clank the ball off the rim, it's going to come into the hands of somebody on our team who's going to put it in the basket. We're going to win anyway. We're, sorry, it's you know NBA playoff. But <laughs> we're covered. We're taken care of. We have every reason to be optimistic and hopeful. And we'll finish up the end of the chapter next week. But all the rest of the chapter is is a celebration of the reality that we are more than conquerors because of the reality of Romans chapter 8. And all of that built on the foundation of grace. You don't save yourself. You don't fix yourself. You don't have to follow the rules. You don't, no, God is working. And his plan is in operation. And once you give your life to him, it's a done deal. All that's left for us to do is to be excited about seeing how he's going to do this, about seeing the, the development of his plan, his redemptive plan that's going to fix everything that's wrong someday. And I just, I love that, and I praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the glorious promises of your word, for the reality of the hope that is in Christ Jesus. God, we're sorry when all those times when we're like a little kid sitting in a car seat back when they used to put steering wheels on them before we got so paranoid, and the little kid's turning the steering wheel and thinking he's driving the car. Well, that's us. We're looking at our lives, we're looking at the world, and we're thinking that somebody's expecting us to know what to do, that we need to save ourselves. Thank you for your grace, that you have everything under control. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who just hasn't accepted where they are right now on your path, Lord, I pray that you will help them to learn to be content where they are. Things probably aren't going to change until they do. But Lord, help us all to realize that tonight, right here on this Wednesday night, we are all exactly where you need us to be in order for you to bring about glory and redemption. Thanks for taking the pressure off of us. Help us to enjoy our walk with you. Lord, if there's anyone here who's struggling with connecting to you in a relational way, maybe their prayer life has been dead and and. They just don't understand that intercession or they haven't experienced that 
letting go and just realizing that we don't have to come up with the right words, that you know our hearts. God, I pray that for each of us, you would draw us into a closer connection with you, that we could walk in the Spirit and then see ourselves miraculously, inexplicably having victory over sin when we're not even trying. We're just loving you and receiving your grace and and you're working glorious changes in our lives. Lord, please do that for us. It's something only you can do. Thank you for this time in this glorious part of your word. There's nothing I could say that could do this stuff justice. So please speak by your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.